This is Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. I believe it's called Red Pub Pod. A podcast. Red Pub Pod. For Red Hot Publications. I gotta get that into a poem. I mean, that's like the ones you were talking about that are hard to say. Good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, depending upon where you are and what time you're listening to this podcast. This is Red Pub Pod coming to you live from the Plush Welded Studio here at Catawba Valley Community College. Today, we have a very, very special guest, along with our regular uh, uh, gang of idiots here. We've got uh, uh, executive producer Richard Eller over here, and I've got my my fantastic friend Patty Thompson right over here across from me. And we're getting ready to interview Scott Owens. Yay! Yeah, let's hear it for Scott. And today's podcast is brought to you by our unofficial sponsor, Tasteful Beans Coffee House, located in downtown Hickory. If you're ever in downtown Hickory, go by Tasteful Beans Coffee House and say you heard about the coffee house on Red Pub Pod, and Scott will charge you double. So, <laughs> no, no, no. And it's a bargain at half the price. You, you get free sugar and free cream if you oh. mention you heard on Red Pub Pod. And I want you to have a cup of that Ethiopian coffee that he's got down there because that is the most wonderful coffee on the face of the planet, and only Tasteful Beans has it. Not to mention plenty of great reading materials as well while you're there. Wonderful books. Yeah, that's true, yeah. because he is also an unofficial retailer for Red Hawk Publications. And you know what? Tasteful Beans can be located at 29 22nd Street, Northwest Hickory. And you can find them on the web at tastefulbeans.com. Did we get that right, Scott? Almost. Okay. Just 2nd Street, not 22nd Street. 2nd Street. No problem. Yeah, right? Glad too far out. 29 2nd Street, Northwest. There you go. So welcome, Scott. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's a joy being here. We are very, very fortunate to have Scott in our... Uh, family of uh, writers. Um, the first book that we did with him is called Sky Full of Stars and Dreaming. Uh, it was a book from 2021. Uh, this was fresh out of COVID lockdown and stuff, wasn't it, Scott? Exactly. Most of those poems were written during COVID, yeah. Yeah, we've even got one in here called Cleaning During COVID that I think is one of my favorites. Um, then we did... Uh, with you and Missy Cleveland, we did a, a children's book called Worlds Enough, Poems for and About Children and a Few Grown-Ups. And this is a wildly colorful and uh, playful book where you are playing with poetry uh, against Missy Cleveland's uh, kind of uh, bright and furious folk art. Um, and then coming out soon, going to be here sometime around the first or second week in November. November. Seems like you wanted it to come out the week before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Okay, that'd be a good Christmas present. Uh, prepositional, new and selected poems. A uh, little bit around 124 pages of new and selected poems. You got a percentage of new and selected? Um, it's probably about 60% new and 40% selected. Okay. It's... Um, it, I, I cheated a little bit uh, with that one. Um, it is selected with a slant, if you will, um, okay. because I think over the eighteen or so books, there are books that there, there are poems that you could call light and poems that you could call dark. And um, with prepositional, I have a regular customer at the coffee shop who owns all of my books, and uh, she sent. Um, 
copies of um, Sky Full of Stars and Dreaming to her sister who had had some challenges with COVID. And she said every time she spoke with her sister, uh, her sister kept bringing up the book and she would start crying. And, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And she said, no, no, it's good crying. It's that cathartic sort of crying. And then she said, do you have another upbeat book that I could send her? And I said, well, no, not really, but I'll write one. So, so I determined then that I was going to put together a, another upbeat book and, and went back to find the, my favorites from the previous 16 or so books and brought those together and then realized I had a bunch that I had been working on during COVID that were more upbeat as well. Um, I think I tend to go against the flow. If everyone else is going negative, then I'm going to go positive. If everyone else is going positive, I'm going to go negative. So um, most of the poems that I wrote during COVID were pretty reassuring, I I guess would be the word. If you guys don't mind, um, I wanted to share with our audience and also with Scott that I actually went on the Internet last night and spoke to a few of Scott's colleagues in poetry and they gave me a list of questions to ask him and it's appropriate to ask one of them now since we're on the topic of the prolific poetry collections you've written and published. Some of them, Scott, were trying to like trick you. They're just they're <laughs> asking you questions like, who's your favorite North Carolina poet? No, you we're know? not going to ask you that because <laughs> all of them are your favorites. But, yeah, um, exactly. But Paul Jones did ask a question I thought was uh, apropos for what we're talking about right now. You've written 17 books and I'm sure that's maybe... Is that accurate? With prepositional, are you at 17? Prepositional would be uh, uh, 18. That's what I figured, yeah. Yeah. Um, What's your criteria for narrowing down what you put in each edition? Selected poems? Selected poems, yeah. Um, Primarily, if I really like them. Okay. Um, There are some that I probably like more than my readers do that I didn't put in because they really haven't been all that popular with the readers. Um, I was looking at one actually this morning. Uh, A student had responded to a poem called uh, Deconstructing the Red Barn. And it is a pre-COVID poem. So since everyone was swimming positive, I was going negative, and I was using the poem to kind of point out the, the fallibility of the romanticized version of the country life. I mean, I grew up in the country, and you know there was just a, an awful lot of violence and death, um, some of it because of the unique nature of my family and some of it just because that's the nature of growing up in the country. And, you know, so the image of the the bright red barn and the happy people all running in circles holding hands around the barn doesn't really hold up to reality. And so I like that poem, but I've never gotten a positive response from a reader other than this one student uh, whose uh, response to what I was reading this morning. Hmm. Everyone else has felt like I was being unfair to the country life. And I'm like, well... Maybe. So realities of the country. Let's balance it out a little bit here. We have plenty of those uh, Norman Rockwell images of the Red Barn. Let's let's show that there's a flip side to that as well. Um, Am I hearing you say that you actually shop your poems then? Like your students would be your um, your audience, and or Um, or at the poetry hickory or. Usually when I'm teaching, I will bring in some of my own poems to serve as this is an example of something you can do and. Um, with that particular one, I don't even remember why I had put it out there in front of them, but it was kind of a group of 10 or 12 poems, and this student chose to write about that one. And um, like I say, usually the only response I get to that one is negative, so I was pleased to hear some positive feedback on it. But that's just an example of one that I wouldn't use in a, a selected works because it hasn't 
It has, doesn't seem to resonate with, positively with a lot of people. And that's really funny, too, because a lot of very, very famous Southern writers, uh, Flannery O'Connor, William Faulkner, uh, Eudora Welty, a lot of their work is somewhat critical of the facade of the happy, you know, Southern life and all of this stuff, when really, uh, like um, Robert Morgan said to me one time when he was visiting Lenore Ryan, he said, Southerners are some of the lowest down, hard to get along with people that you've ever met in your entire life. <laughs> that, and I cleaned that language up because it's not all, you know, let's join hands and dance around the barn. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of um, really mean people out there. And uh, the students would always react to Faulkner and um, Flannery O'Connor that way. So you have joined a, a rarefied air there. <laughs> Well, and, you know, I, I don't think it's all one way or the other, as with almost everything. There's the, the, the truth lies across every spot in the spectrum. Um, and I just think too often we find ourselves fixating on one image as this is the way it is. And it, it never is that way. It's always that way plus 50 million other ways. And sometimes we just need to acknowledge um, the breadth of uh, diversity that exists in any situation rather than trying to simplify it down to one thing. Yeah, it's like Leonard Cohen said, I've got, I've got a wider stripe of gray. Yeah. The gray area is, is oftentimes where the truth is. Right. I love the, the line from Whitman where he says, uh, uh, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. That's it. What else you got, Miss Patty, from the... Tim Peeler, illustrious poet himself, and of course one of our senior editors here. He had a a, a question that I'm sure our, our listeners would like to hear. What what compelled you to go into poetry, and when did you know that you were a poet? That's a tough one, really. Um, I mean, I can remember when I was a kid. My family, the television was always on, and uh, there was always someone watching it. Uh, I was more likely to be lying on the floor reading and then would look up when the commercials came on because I enjoyed the jingles. There was rhythm and rhyme to it. Um, I remember enjoying the uh, the jump rope rhymes at uh, recess. So I think I've always been fascinated with the language. And probably the first things that I did in regards to writing were mostly short stories. I enjoyed writing tall tales. As soon as I discovered tall tales, I thought, oh, I can be more outlandish than that. Let me show you. And uh, wrote tall tales. But at, at some point... Probably in my mid to late teens, it seemed like everything that I wanted to write was shorter, had fewer words, and had more white space, um, blanks that the reader would fill in, uh, details intentionally uh, left out to achieve something. And so I guess at, at some point around 17 or 18, I started to think, you know, I'm more inclined towards poetry. Um, I think I've written four finished uh, adult-level short stories in my life, and every time I do, I'm amazed. I'm like, wow, I can write something other than a poem. Um, but then I always want, you know, for every four poems, I have, or every four short stories, I have 500 poems. So <laughs> it just, that, that seems to be how I perceive things as a, as a poem rather than a, a story. When did you know you were a poet, though? Was it that first hundred copies sold, or was it that first book published? Or I, I think I knew that I was going to write, and whether I would continue to okay. write poetry, that you know, in, in fact, it could change at any point. Uh, uh -huh. If 
Uh, a lot of people have pushed me to write my memoirs, and I always think, yeah, it's not poetry, though. Can I write a poetic memoir? I suppose I could, but I don't know. But if I sit down after retirement and start writing my memoirs, who knows? Maybe um, that'll be something significant. Um, for me, I guess the first stamp of, okay, you might have something here, was um, in grad school at uh, UNC Charlotte when um, Robert Gray asked if I would submit one of the poems I had written for class uh, to Southern Poetry Review. And I thought Southern Poetry Review is a big deal. I still think it's a big deal. So first I went home and checked my pants to make sure everything was okay, and um, <laughs> then I got that poem together. And he said, and while you're at it, send in a couple more too. So I sent in, I think, five poems, and he kept two of them for the next issue. So I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty awesome. I think I'm going to stick with this. That could be the moment yeah. <laughs> when you're published. <laughs> yeah, usually, usually when you're published yeah. or usually when somebody you really respect yeah. uh, asks for your work or comments on your work. I remember the first uh, real uh, rejection I got that tickled me was one where the, the editor of the magazine had sent back suggestions of, you know, change this and, and then send it back to me. And I just thought, whoa, that's wonderful because usually you just get a... Rejection. Right. Yeah, go away, leave us alone. But uh, you can kind of feel like you're a writer when you get that, fix this and send it back to me and then let's go from there. I do think, however, and I think it's an important point, that if Robert Gray had never asked for a poem and no magazine had ever accepted a poem, I, w I would still write. Um, I, I don't think the fact that I write has anything to do with publication except that I really do think that I have something significant to say, so I want people to read it. I want their brains to be engaged with what's going on and, and my perception of the world. But if uh, people had never read it, that would not have kept me from writing. That's marvelous. There, there are a lot of people like that, that, uh, that they've got notebooks full of stuff that no sure. one's ever going to see because they've got the compulsion to still write. And, and sometimes it's therapeutic. It's not only that they're worrying about something that the, they're going to tell the world or the world understanding their opinion. It has to do with they can't understand their own feelings and thoughts sometimes until they've had a chance to put it down on paper or put it in some kind of art where they can then revise it. Because sometimes in the revision process, you begin to see, oh, there's the relationship I had with my dad. There's the poisonous part of the relationship with this person in my family. Or there's the reason why my mother acted the way she did. Uh, it was Virginia Woolf that said she never really understood her mother's situation until she wrote the novel To the Lighthouse. I think putting anything into visible words turns it into an object, but then you can analyze, you can, it, it literally objectifies it, so it puts it out there almost as if it's now someone else's story. You've created this character. Even if the character is named I, it's still a character. And you can examine it and analyze it and figure out what, what caused this, what, how might it have been avoided, what can be made from it. Uh, all of those things become much easier once it's down on the page, and so the idea of writing as self-therapy is certainly not a new idea, um, but I do, just from working with my students, I think it's becoming an increasingly important idea. Now, did having, being a poet figure into you eventually becoming a business owner with a coffee shop? <laughs> you know, in a weird sort of way it did, because we had started uh, Poetry Hickory at the coffee shop years before we bought the coffee shop, and so I was very familiar with it. Um, I was very comfortable with the atmosphere, and to be honest, 
when I could tell that the guys who owned the coffee shop were losing interest and were probably going to shut down or sell, I didn't want to lose my venue for Poetry Hickory. So uh, I talked to my wife and got a gauge of where she was in her career, and she said she was more than ready to leave corporate America. And she didn't know if a coffee shop would work, but uh, if I wanted to talk to them and let them know that we might be interested, um, to go right ahead. So I did. And two years later, they came back and said, hey, remember when you talked to us about maybe buying the coffee shop? Well, we're ready to sell. And we, uh, we met with them. They were good friends of ours, so there was no haggling. They named a price, and we said, okay, let's do it. And you've made a real great run of it since then. It has, it has gone very well. I mean, business has uh, multiplied tenfold since we bought it, and um, it, it's a lot of work. And I'm just so glad that you made it through the lockdown and everything because you did a wonderful job during lockdown of keeping the doors open but keeping it safe for people because right. I delivered a lot of books down there and picked up a lot of coffee and a lot of groceries during the lockdown from you. And I was just very, very pleased at how positive you approached everybody's health and the protection of your customers and still being able to run Tasteful Beans uh, so, hooray for you as a yeah. as a thoughtful, conscientious retailer. There's a difference between a coffee house and, let's say, a community coffee gathering place, which is what Scott's created. Mm-hmm. It's not just coffee. Um, it's amazing food, freshly prepared. And I'm not doing an ad spot, but I'm just saying <laughs> everything about what you've got there is really speaks to the community because you've got local artists' um, gifts that you can buy, um, amazing art. And you've got an open-door policy where people can come, and you're open mic at Poetry Hickory. So it really is a community gathering place. Well, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and that really was the thing that was the most worrisome during the COVID lockdown, was the fact that the place is a destination place where people like to hang out. And the first thing that you and Julie did was you took the tables and chairs out. Yeah. And you could just come in, make sure your mask was on, pick up your stuff, and you had to go. And... Uh, I think it's just wonderful that you made it through it. I'm just so glad that the coffee shop's still there and still now we're back to where we can gather. Yeah. And, and by the way, did we mention you can buy books there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and really cool T-shirts that advertise the coffee shop, too. So. We, uh, I actually joke around with my students uh, sometimes when they are complaining about what their literature classes are requiring them to read, and I point out to them that if I had not read Darwin and The Naturalists, that the coffee shop might not still be there. But the, the key word from The Naturalist was adapt, and that's what we've tried to do constantly is just adapt to whatever uh, people need, people want within reason. Excuse me, we're in a Rolling Stones. Now we're advertising for the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Oh, Dave, you We've done that more than once. If you keep that up, we're going to have to pay royalties on that. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for selling as many copies of our Hickory Then and Now book uh, during the COVID lockdown as you did, because that was a project that... Uh, uh, Patty, Richard, and I worked on throughout the COVID lockdown that uh, basically came out at the epoch of, you know, the infection. And we kept, you know, bringing you copies and you you kept selling them all the way through. I mean, yeah, it's a gorgeous book. I mean, I'm not surprised it's such a good seller. Um, I'll be surprised if we don't sell just as many as we enter this holiday season. So hopefully you have plenty on on. Uh, 
We do. We got a few. We, we got a few. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. yeah. Same thing with the Newton Then and Now book, too. Yeah. We've got, if we've you're got. a Hickory resident and you used to live in Newton, you'd like that book. Yep. Of course, it's got to be an interesting feeling when you're watching World's Enough because a lot of those have flown oh, off the God. shelf in your um, in your coffee shop. And you being co-author with that, I mean, how does that feel? Well, you know, I, I've had poems written for children around for ever since my daughter was a child, so 20 years. Um, and I've always thought I could put these together into a book, but I also knew it had to be illustrated. And uh, I can't even draw a straight line. Forget about stick figures. I can't draw a single straight line. So putting five or six of them together, no way. Um, and I just didn't know who to turn to for illustrations. And I had so much else going on that it was never at the top of my to-do list. And then honestly, one morning I came into the coffee shop and had a, 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 an idea for a poem rolling through my head based on uh, uh, some things that had happened in, in class with students. Uh, particularly students who didn't want to be called he or she, but wanted to be called they. And, um, you know, initially I had the grammarian's response to that, just thinking, well, that's, that's, no, we can't do that. And then I started thinking about how in my own life and in all of my work, I've encouraged people to, um, to identify themselves for themselves. So that it was really no different. And uh, over on the wall, as I'm walking in, I see this this painting by Missy. Uh, it basically is it's like three faces coming out of one painting. And I'm like, well, that's it. That's, that's what's rolling through my head is this idea that we all have multiple personalities, if you will, not in a clinical sense, but in a, um, a very practical sense. We have to have different personalities. You're not going to talk to your mother the same way you talk to your girlfriend. Or if you do, you got a problem, a bigger problem. Um, <laughs> And so the painting and read some to, Freud there. The, the painting seemed to capture that idea, and I hadn't really thought of the idea as a poem for children. But looking at the painting, I thought I could focus that towards kids. And then I looked around the room some more, and my head was really spinning now. Think, and, and, and I realized that half of Missy's paintings were just perfect for a children's book. book. Yeah. And, um, in fact, I started thinking about poems of mine that I could pair with paintings that she already had. And uh, so I just called her up and said, hey, um, have you ever thought about illustrating a children's book? And she said, no, but mm -hmm. I can. So um, we started running with it, and it has, uh, I think it's been probably my second best-selling book ever. Um, the Fractured World is probably the bestseller, but it's been around for a very, very long time, so it's had years and years to accumulate those sales. and. Mm -hmm. It was used at a couple of uh, universities for um, classroom teaching, so that pumps up the sales some when every student has to have one. Speaking of which, would you mind maybe indulging us in reading a poem that you'd like to read for us from Worlds Enough? From Worlds Enough? Sure. Yeah. Any, um, anything in particular? How about the one that you feel... All right, let's go, with, let's go with the oldest, then. This is actually probably my second oldest poem ever. Um, I wrote it as a high school student, very angry with my family, which was not at all uncommon, and um, modeled it after uh, the Robert Frost poem, um, Pasture Spring. I'm, I think it's called the Pasture Spring. I'm going out to clear the Pasture Spring. I shan't be gone long, and yada, yada, yada. And then at the end, he says, you come too. Well, I wrote kind of the same thing, but at the end I said, you stay home. That was directed towards my family. wasn't the sort of poem that I really thought I would publish, but 
I tell my students never throw anything away, and over the years I've kept this around. <laughs> and then a few years back when uh, Maurice Sendak died, I realized I'm going to retouch that poem in honor of Maurice Sendak. Um, so it's called Stay Wild. I'm going out, he says, to anyone who isn't listening, off the porch and through the yard, out the gate that we keep barred, past the topsy-turvy hens, pecking, prancing, dancing again, flaunting highfalutin feathers, cackling loud and all together, just to get fluffed up enough, past the pasture crowd of cattle proud, lowing deep and lowing gruff, and flaying flies with fraying tails, past the pond whose boat we rode and caught the wind in its little sails, to find the croaking toad's abode, Past the fence so long and frightening, seeming like it's ever tightening. I'm going out to the wild woods where the wild things are, where dragons and giants come out to play and chase my restlessness away, where flowers bloom from every field and cities rise from every hill, where skies are blue and blowing wild and welcome every dreaming child, where everything that I can see makes me think more endlessly. But don't you worry, I won't go far, just far enough to be farther away than I could imagine yesterday. I always think of that little boy in Where the Wild Things Are mm-hmm. who gets sent to his room without supper and he goes off into this. For him, it's a, a, at least it starts out to be a, an angry uh, fantasy land. And um, I mean, I did very much the same thing. I, I ran away more times than I can count when I was a kid, only to come back before morning. But, uh, you know, running away literally or figuratively is kind of the same thing. Now, when you rediscovered that poem and decided to put it in there, did you touch it up, or is it the artifact that you first wrote? It's definitely, definitely touched up. Okay. Time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How much revision goes into the cadence of a poem like that? That poem definitely has a cadence. It definitely has a meter. It's got this gee, golly, gosh kind of thing, and, it, and the, the words are crunchy. They fill your mouth uh, as you were reading it, I'm thinking, I'd have done stumbled over that. I'd have done stumbled over that line. So you're an excellent reader as well. But how much, how much revision goes into, into that to where you can get that perfect thing you want? Well, that one's definitely a difficult one to read. Um, and perfect, I don't know that it exists. Um, I, I, I guess two, two things that I would say to that. One, I constantly tell my students, you got to read, 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 read. And the bottom line is we internalize these, these rhythms, these patterns, um, such that we can do them without having to think so much about them. And if you don't read constantly in the style that you want to write, then you're not going to be able to do that. It's, it's like playing basketball. If, if Michael Jordan had to think about the move he was getting ready to make, he'd never have time to make it. But he practices, practices, practices these moves, and then he gets in the game, and the, the situation arises, and he does it automatically. Um, that kind of has to happen to some degree with writing. But at the same time, I revise endlessly. Um, I, I tell my students that Whitman revised Leaves of Grass, or Whitman had 19 different versions of Leaves of Grass. I figure if that's okay for him, then it's okay for me. So. I have poems that I have published in a magazine, revised it, published in a book, revised it, published in a second book, revised it, and whenever I give a reading, it usually sounds different from how it appears in the book anyway. Um, so it's just, it's, it's endless, to be honest. You reach a point where you're happy enough with it that you can publish it or that you can read it in public, and you just kind of have to go with that, but that doesn't mean you have to be done with it. You can still change it. 
Yeah, my students have always been interested to find out that, you know, Whitman wrote one book, Leaves of Grass. He just he just published it 19, 17 19 times, times yeah. 19 <laughs> times, uh, you know, those revisions. Wow. Um, you know, I'll point out Alana Dagenhart, who has also published with us, by the way, Yellow Leaves, a lovely collection. Um, she had a question, and you've alluded to the answer, but let's maybe fine-tune with fine-tune that question a little bit. You are an instructor at Lenore Ryan University teaching creative writing, I believe? Yes. And her question is, uh, what's the number one thing a poet can do to get better? Now, I'm hearing you say you tell your students to read and revise. Anything else that you could mention, maybe something? The hardest one? I mean, reading and revising, that, that's a matter of time. The hardest one is making writing a priority. I mean, we're barraged on a daily basis with responsibilities, expectations, opportunities, all these things we can do with our time. And, and time is like money. We, we only have a, a yeah, we only have a limited amount of it, and we choose how we're going to spend it. Some people want to spend it playing video games all day. That's fine. Their choice as long as they can make a living doing it. Um, so to convince young people to spend their time pursuing writing is a difficult task. But I, I think that's the, the number one thing, is if writing's not a priority for you, then you're really not going to get significantly better. You might get a little better. You might publish a few here and there. But to, to really make something out of it, uh, it, just, it has to be a priority. You've got to be able to stop people in the middle of a conversation and say, excuse me, not being rude, I've got to get something down real quick. You've got to be willing to use the emergency lane on the interstate to write whatever is coming up in your mind at that time. I mean, and it is emerging, therefore it is an emergency. That, that was my explanation to uh, two of the three patrol, uh, uh, state patrolmen who have pulled me over or, or pulled up to ask me why I'm in the emergency lane. <laughs> no way. Yeah, and okay. they, they handled it very well. They're like, okay, be careful. And I think they, they, you know, I was honest with them. I showed them the paper, so I think they understood. So do you do that like in the middle of running a coffee shop? You get mm. those ideas or? I usually might find some way to detach myself very quickly. It helps to be the boss. You know, you can tell someone, hey, hey, come here. You do this for me for a moment. I'll be right back. And I'm inspired. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, that's one of the things I admire about Professor Eller here is he, he you do make time to write. Yeah. He'll spend weekends, you know, writing while the rest of us are binging something on Netflix. He well, comes I, I agree with you. You have to. Although I have the love of the new. If it's a new project, I can't wait to get into it. But I got three going right now, and in various stages of enthusiasm that I, you know, eh, might work on, might not, kind of thing. So it is. I think it's fantastic when you're working on uh, multiple things at once. You can bounce around. And, you know, you take whatever energy is really coming to you. Typically, if you've got three different fonts, let's call it, three different fountains of energy at that time, one of them's going to be flowing. So you settle into that one, you, you use it until it runs dry, and then you go, you know, mow the grass. When you come back, a second one has picked up, and you can launch into that one again. Uh, this year, between working on Worlds Enough and Prepositional and uh, the one uh, that you guys have agreed to, published in the spring, uh, all in, I've had those three different things to work on. Um, and recently, since World's Enough came out and now Prepositional is at the press, I got a little dejected because there wasn't as much going on in my head. And I'm like, oh, man. Or there's always plenty going on in your head, but it may not be the stuff you really want to have going on in your head. So, so I've started um, working on the one after all in to 
to get my brain clicked in again. Yeah, if you want to get really inspired for uh, for writing, uh, mowing the grass is a great. <laughs> I've written entire short stories in my head on the mower, you know, because it's kind of this mindless kind of thing. Yes. Driving long distances is another way to to do that too. It's just kind of. You know, uh, uh, your instinct takes over, and before you know it, you've got this entire plot plotted out. And yeah. sometimes you do have to stop. and And I've been lucky to learn how to use my recorder on my phone. Uh, speaking of prepositional, have you got a favorite in there that you'd like to maybe read for our listeners out there? Prepositional is up for pre-sale right now. You can save uh, a couple dollars on it at uh, redhawkpublications.com. Of course, Scott's going to have it on sale at Tasteful Beans Coffee House when he gets it in. It's a $15 book, and I think it's 12 right now for pre-order. So go to your computer, your phone, and uh, give us a couple dollars. But, uh, Scott, what you want to read from it? Well, I'm going to, you know, anytime you ask me my favorite, that that's... Uh, yeah, it's like uh, asking which one of your children do you love the most. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I, I could ponder over that for quite some time. <laughs> but I think, just in the interest of conversation, I'll read the one called Of. Uh, it's page, and I see you're looking at something. 66. 66 yeah. yep. Of. Um... Backstory first, backstory second. This one I actually wrote when uh, my daughter was in uh, second grade, and I had gone out to her school to teach a uh, little creative writing workshop for the students. And I got there early. I, I have a tendency to get places early. Um, and I was standing staring out the window, and, and one little girl came up to me and asked what I was looking at. Um, and that's really where this poem started because I gave her, you know, a pretty straightforward answer, but at the same time I was saying one thing to her, my brain was going on with that idea, you know, why are you standing at the window looking out? And I realized I spent a great deal of my life standing at windows looking out, and uh, that maybe that's, that's where an awful lot of poetry has come from, so, of. Poetry is contrary to productivity. Poetry encourages idleness. Poetry stands at the window because it is curious about the flowers, this flower with its yellow fringed face around its one brown eye. Poetry stands at the window because it is curious about the trees, this tree with heart-shaped leaves, some turning yellow in the first days of fall, some fallen off and still the limbs reaching up to the sky. Poetry stands at the window because it is curious about the sky, how it got there, where it goes, what it's like where it ends. Poetry wants the window down. Poetry walks back and forth through a field going nowhere. Poetry thinks it's okay to look at the same sky day after day, sometimes minutes at a time, sometimes with no other purpose but remembering blue. Poetry refuses to follow the rules of efficiency, get in line, speak only when spoken to, never say anything that would embarrass your mother. The first poem ever written was a drum. The first poem ever written was a foot tapping on the side of the crib. The first poem ever written was a rope slapping the red clay playground of William Blake Elementary School. It is not necessary for poetry to be beautiful, though sometimes it is. It is not required of poetry that it be profound, though it rarely closes its eyes. It is not expected that the face of poetry be etched with tears, the hair dripping with sweat, the mouth expressing all. Poetry owes nothing to anyone. Still, poetry wakes up each morning, walks to the edge of the world, and jumps, believing one time it will fly, 
believing one time the dive will not end, believing one time an answer will rise from somewhere beyond. If you if you don't like that, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's one thing about your poetry is it's very accessible. Mm. Um, you know, I don't mean to say that some poets are in, inaccessible, but there are poets but that some I, poets are inaccessible. <laughs> well, I, I oftentimes open my my poetry sections in my classes about you know I say okay here comes our poetry unit and they all groan mm. and I say no 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 now you're going to find some poetry that is going to speak to you and you're going to find some that doesn't it's it's trying to figure out why certain poetry speaks to you that is the most important thing and I have students who will fall in love with Emily Dickinson I have students who will fall in love with with you know other poets and and modern poets versus you know older ones, and then you know, there'll be one who will say, "I can't figure out what Eliot's trying to tell me in the wasteland." And no one's I'll, ever said that before. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I will say I've been I've been arguing with that poem for twenty five years, but your stuff is very accessible in its humanness. Not always. Um, I mean, when I give a reading, I, I tend to choose the more accessible pieces because I want, you know, if you don't have it in front of you to read, it's harder to understand. And I want the, the audience to leave feeling like they understood something. Um, so I, I favor the more accessible poems when I'm reading out loud. Uh, in, in certain books, um, like, um, oh, blocking on the title now, um, Down to Sleep. Those are very difficult to figure out exactly what's going on, primarily because they're mostly based on dreams. And, uh, of course, the logic of a dream can't be tracked. There, there's no A to B to C to D. It's A to wherever hell it wants to go and then back around to wherever hell it wants to go, and it just keeps going that way. But, you know, dreams can be important um, to us for understanding what's going on in our unconscious or subconscious and so I think they're worth exploring as well and uh, sometimes that's the uh, the logic of a dream has more in common with the logic of reality than any straight line scenario that we can create by interpreting that reality anyway so uh, there are some of mine that are that are quite difficult but in general I, I want to be accessible I want to be understood I don't want to be easy because easy tends to be read, nodded at, and forgotten. I want there to be something that's going to resonate and, and cause the reader to continue to think about it for a little while. Well, that is that is the point. It's it, it's accessible, but it does resonate. It's one of those things that you don't forget. And I will admit that that book you mentioned is your, that's your Tim Early kind Tim of, Early. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that when I got it, you were very nice to give me a copy of that years ago. And, and I said, yeah, this is like Tim Early kind of poetry that I'm going to have to really dig down and get into this. But in Sky Full of Stars and Dreaming, um, I took this book home when it was in proof, and I gave it to my wife, and I said, uh, please look in this for typos. I said, because this is the first book we've done for Scott, and I want it to be perfect. I don't want there to be any problems with it. So will you look at it? And she went through it, and she was sitting in the living room, and she got up, and she came into the, into the den where I was sitting, and she had page 35. Uh, so if you go to page 35 in there. A marriage. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. She just, she held it like this, 
and for you, those of you out there in listening land, she held it with her middle finger in the middle, and she held it out to me, and she tapped with her index finger. And don't forget, the title of it is A Marriage. A Marriage. <laughs> so would you, it's, it's not a long one, would you read that yeah, for yeah, our listeners? A Marriage. We work together, you and I. You with your tireless planning, I with my tireless doing. We build, plant, grow, design, cook, clean, teach. We, you and I, work together. Make the bed, the coffee, make things better, make time for talking, listening, feeling, being, becoming, loving. You and I, we work together. That is one of those poems that she still talks about. And she's not a poetry reader, but that resonated with her because it's everybody's marriage that's like mine and hers. Yeah, I wrote this after uh, Julie and I had bought the coffee shop because for the first time in our lives, we were literally working together. Um, And I I think I had kind of come to the conclusion that one of the things that keeps a couple close is... Absence? No, no, no. Shared purpose? <laughs> yes. Shared purpose, exactly. I, I, this is uh, marital advice from the poet. But, um, hey, it's as good as, from a poet as anybody. Always have a project that, that you're working with your spouse on or your partner on together. Um, whether it's a kid, whether it's a business, whether it's remodeling a house, whether it's planting a garden, if you always have a project, you just, you stay together, you talk, you have shared interests, you have shared concerns, and uh, that's been kind of key, I think, for she and I, and, and, or, and, and now, of course, maybe we work together too much, but it's all right, it, it works. So. It's a project and it's a process. Yeah. I, think that, I think that came out in a lot of people during lockdown, oh, yeah. because, you know, I've been married 42 years, and, and a lot of people say it's because I spent a lot of time out of the house working. That I've been able to stay married 42 years, mm. and but when we were locked down for that year, I quite enjoyed it. Mm. And it was like you said, there were projects and there were things to do. And she complained at me about working too much because you know all three of us in, during lockdown, Richard, Patty, and I we were working on books and trying to keep the program alive, and you know working on publishing this book and that book and other poets that you and Tim Pegler had sent this way. And and I kind of enjoyed that camaraderie of working together toward a common goal. So this is totally random now, but I have to throw it out just because it just happened. Another one of the things that I tell my students, I, I, I have them read Mary Oliver, and then I say, pay attention. That's maybe the, the second most important thing uh, for becoming a better writer, is learning to pay attention. And I even give them exercises, and I say, you have to make a hobby out of paying attention. This is how you do it. You do it seven times every day, or you do it or seven days in a row, and you'll discover that you're paying a lot more attention without even trying. And then I have to remind them, after they all come back with all these um, poems about things they've seen, that sometimes it's a matter of listening as well. You have to pay attention to what you hear. And some poems, some lines have just started with things that I've misheard over the years, something you hear in the hallway, and it sounds brilliant or it sounds hilarious, and you're like, i got to use that, even though you realize I didn't hear it quite the way it was said. Um, Just then, you said Richard, Patty, and I. And I heard Richard Petty and I, and I'm thinking, (laughs) oh, 
I can write a little poem. I'm a race car driver, yeah. yeah. Richard Petty and I, and see what happens in that poem. That's funny. You know what? We, we're going to have to wrap this up, but we do have one final question from one of your poet colleagues, Adrian Rice. Um, he's got a good question for you. What would you. What would be your top three desert island books of poetry and why? Well, the temptation is just to say the Norton Anthology of something because it'll be huge, right? <laughs> right. Um, and you got a lot of time to spend on that desert island. So. Exactly. You don't want to exhaust your uh, your sources, your resources too uh, too early. Um, honestly, I would have to take Galway Cannell's Book of Nightmares because I never tire of reading it, and every time I read it, it seems different. And I think that's the the mark of of really great poetry is. It seems to change as you change. Um, and then I, w- I would take one anthology. I think I would settle for um, there's a book called Another Republic, and it's uh, like a mid-'70s uh, anthology of uh, European and South American writers, uh, Yehuda Amakai, Yanis Ritsos, uh, C.P. Kabafi, um, just fantastic writers who were doing things that were different from what we were doing in America at that time. Um, and so it, it, it's like discovering new stuff all the time. So I'd, I'd want to take that. And, and then, honestly, it would be whichever I could get cheapest between the collected works of E.E. E. Cummings, Robert Frost, or William Shakespeare. Just something big that is deep enough and interesting enough to, to keep me going. Uh, I would probably look for Cummings because he would be more fun than anyone else that I had chosen. So you have to have a little bit to laugh at sometimes. Yeah, that big Riverside Shakespeare would be a good one to to take because you're gonna get you're gonna get comedy and horror and but what if you came off the island and you were talking like Shakespeare? I don't know. That would, I would like it because it would irritate people. Forsooth, methinks, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is assuming you get off the island, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah well. but, but if you do, then um, it, it only makes you more quotable, Yeah. Yeah. as it turns out. Of course, it would be just as bad if you got off the island talking like Cummings. Anyone oh lived gosh. in a pretty now town with up so many floating bells down? Like, What? Yeah, and then somebody goes like, "You're you're you're speaking in lowercase, aren't you?" There's <laughs> <laughs> no capital letters. In this. Yeah. But that that is a very good idea about being observational as many times as you can, and then you start to think, "How can I put that together?" There's something that ties this. I really like that. Uh, I, I take it students students do that. You get them to do it. I get some to do it, and and I can usually tell which ones are doing it by the fact that the um, the visceral detail in their writing multiplies. Um, it, it's a simple thing. I tell them uh, intentionally go somewhere that you don't usually go, that you're not going to see a whole lot of people you know, and just stop and sit for 20 minutes and listen and look and write down the details of what you see, and I say do that every day for the next seven days. And you will notice that as you're walking from classroom to student union, you actually notice more details than you ever did before it just because you've made it a habit. And that's kind of the key is you want to go through life paying attention, noticing more things. Um, that gives you the raw material out of which you're going to build whatever it is you're writing. At the very least, that builds documentation for the age in which you live yeah. to pass on to people because this will change. 
And it also it also contributes to critical thinking skills too. I mean, it causes you to to you know to pay attention and ask questions of things because if you're paying attention and you're noticing how something works the first time or something like that, you might want to try to figure out. You know, I never forget when I was a little kid, I thought it was brilliant because I figured out if you ran over those little plates on the street, the light would change to green. <laughs> and for some reason, when I was really little, I thought I was the only one that knew that. <laughs> you know, the light would be red and my father would roll up and I'd go like, now he's going to roll over that piece of metal and the light's going to change. And I thought I was just brilliant because I'd figured that out. So, but it, but it's you, so paying attention. You know the grooves on bridges? When you're going over them, they make what sounds kind of like music, right? Mm -hmm. I'm still waiting for someone to make it so that as you drive over those grooves, it plays the Rolling Stones. Ah. And there is, I think, out west, one of those that that it's like um, uh, the Star Spangled Banner or some song that we all know. They they've done that, but you don't see that enough. It would be, wouldn't it be great if you were traveling to work every day and you got, you know. you got a course of Give Me Shelter, or you yeah. got uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, or you know, it's something yeah, that you like. And they actually did it out west with the with the grooves that they put on the side of the road that let you know you've run off the side of the road. The uh-huh. wake, wake yeah, you up. Yeah, they did it up with that grooves. Does it go stop? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it was play, it would play Born to Be Wild or something. Yeah. <laughs> going off road. <laughs> the theme to Thelma and Louise yeah, right. heading toward the cliff. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen out there in podcast land, thank you for joining us again for another fantastic episode. Thank you, Scott Owens, thank you. for coming yes, in. Thank it is you. always a pleasure to talk to you, and it is even greater pleasure to publish you uh, because you're just really, really good. You're a good guy, and I like I, that. I like working on these projects because they're they're not only um, not only does Scott know what he wants. But he's also can put it into words to where <laughs> I can translate it into into a book, into a thing. But it's also really, really good poetry. So again, uh, RedHawkPublications.com. Put Scott Owen's name in the search bar right there, and you can buy all of his books. And he's got his other books from other publishers at uh, Tasteful Beans Coffee House, which is our favorite retailer. Which is our favorite retailer and our favorite coffee shop. You got to try the Ethiopian. I'm telling you. Uh, he's got the beans there, and he'll grind them for you, and it is marvelously flavored coffee. So uh, I guess that's it for— well, Wait, we've got, oh, two we've got two final things. Two final um, things. I'm sorry. Just to remind folks okay. to please like, share, and subscribe to Red ah. Pub Pod. Yeah, yes. I forget about because that. Because we, we really want to make sure that since we are the second favorite podcast in Catawba Valley, according to Hickory Daily Records— And what was that podcast again that— I believe it's called Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. I got to get that into a poem. I mean, that, that's like the, the ones you were talking about. They're hard to say. I'm going to Red Pub Pod. Yeah, that's so just the next poem. It, Man, it rolls off your lips easy. Yeah. yeah. It's because he's so dadgum good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is that is that's that it? Okay, that's it. make sure you like and subscribe and all these other little things, and uh, please uh, vote for us next year where we can be number one podcast in the Catawba Valley. And uh, we appreciate it. And for Richard, Patty, and Scott Owens, have a good one, guys, and read some poetry tonight. This has been. I believe it's called Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. A podcast. From Red Hawk Publications. Red Hub Pop. I gotta get that into a poem. I mean, that's like the, the ones you were talking about, they're hard to say.